Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about Zhang Xueliang and the Xi'an incident. A drug addict, a warlord who ran his own fiefdom, larger than most European countries, an ex-lover of Benito Mussolini's daughter Edda. A prisoner of well over half a century, a man born right after the Boxer Rebellion, but lived long enough to see the Twin Towers fall on 9/11, and at a critical juncture, for better or worse, a shaper of modern China's destiny. What manner of man could this be? You ask. Well. We mentioned him already on this podcast in our episode on the Soviet general Vasily Chuikov and his career in China. And I remember seeing a documentary about him on TV when I was a young boy in Taiwan called "Ji Mo Shao Shui Ban Shi Ji," half a century of loneliness for the young marshal. The man widely known as the Young Marshal. Zhang Xueliang was born in June 1901, or as the dating convention still in use at the last years of empire had it, the 27th year of the reign of Emperor Guangxu. His father was Zhang Zuoling, a poor peasant boy, who by the time of Zhang Xueliang's birth had become a cavalry officer in the Qing Imperial Army. In 1911, when the Republican Revolution began in southern and central China, Zhang Zuoling in the north sided with the monarchists and suppressed the revolution locally. What ended up happening, and we must do an episode on this subject alone, was that the imperial military-controlled north, in the end, negotiated with the newly republican south. And struck an agreement. Under this agreement, in 1912, the newly installed president of the republic, Dr. Sun Yat-sen, gave up his seat in favor of General Yuan Shikai, the most powerful of the old northern military commanders. And Yuan Shikai ended up quickly declaring himself emperor again, so that a second. Republican Revolution became necessary, but like I said, we'll cover that in a separate episode. Zhang Zuoling served Yuan Shikai while he was in power, and won promotions for his troubles. By 1918, Zhang Zuoling had taken personal control of not only military but civilian affairs as well in Manchuria, China's great northeastern industrial area. An area about the same size as France and the United Kingdom put together. In short, he became the warlord of Manchuria, and he took to calling himself Zhang Da Shui or Grand Marshal Zhang, which is why people came to call his son the Young Marshal. So Zhang Shuiliang grew up initially quite poor. 
back when his dad was still earning his spurs. But then he became more or less the prince of Manchuria, and he followed his father into a military career. At the age of eighteen, he entered the military academy that Zhang Zuoling reopened in Manchuria, just so that his son wouldn't have to go study in another warlord's territory. Just a year later, with what seems like obvious nepotism. Zhang Xiaoliang graduated from the military academy, and by November of the same year, 1920, at the age of 19, he had received promotion from daddy to the rank of major general. In 1922, war broke out between his father and rival warlord Wu Peifu. This. Is what 1920s China was like: seemingly endless little civil wars between rival warlords. Wu Peifu won this engagement, and Zhang Zuoling retreated north of the Great Wall back to Manchuria. But the end result was that he declared that henceforth Manchuria would be autonomous. And. Upset by the defeat, Zhang Zuoling spent the next couple of years buying modern weapons from abroad. He even made his son the commandant of his new air force. In September 1924, Zhang Zuoling launched a second war against his neighboring warlord to the south. This time he won, and even took control of Beijing. The following year, in 1925, the Manchurian military, led by Zhang Xueliang, went so far south as to enter Shanghai. Starting in 1927, though, the Republican revolutionaries, or perhaps more accurately, their next generation, who had been based in China's far south and claimed legitimacy as the central government, now launched what history calls. The Northern Expedition. Their leader was one Chiang Kai-shek, and their aim was to compel all the warlords in the north to fall in line and submit to the central authority of the Republic. Jiang's National Revolutionary Army was largely successful. By 1928, Zhang Zuoling had been forced. To retreat once again to his home base of Manchuria. On the early morning of June fourth, nineteen twenty-eight, Zhang Zuoling was riding a train back to his headquarters when the railway exploded under him. Japanese agents had planted explosives with the aim of assassinating him as a precursor. To an invasion of China, they succeeded. In the wake of his father's assassination, the young marshal now took power in Manchuria. With vengeance against the Japanese foremost on his mind, Zhang Xueliang at this time nominally submitted to Chiang Kai-shek's authority as the leader of the central government. We can perhaps. 
gloss over the next few years with just a headline. Through the early to mid 1930s, Imperial Japan took gradual steps to encroach into China, starting with Manchuria, the part of China nearest to Japan. The September 18, 1931 incident probably deserves its own episode, so we'll save that for another time. For now, the important thing to understand is that, as the warlord of Manchuria, and as the son of a man murdered by the Japanese, Zhang Shuiliang was particularly eager for China to take a stand and fight back. However, the central government, led by Chiang Kai-shek, dragged its feet in this regard. It played a delicate diplomatic game with Japan. The United States and the Soviet Union. Chiang was not prepared at this time to fight Japan. The Kuomintang or KMT, which was the ruling party of the central government, and the Chinese Communist Party, on the other hand, had been fighting a civil war for some time. Each time, the KMT seemed to have the CCP on the ropes. The communist guerrillas would somehow manage to get away. Jiang's position was that the Chinese had to clean house internally before they could be strong enough to fend off a foreign foe. And Zhang Shuiliang and his Manchurian forces assisted Chiang Kai-shek in the anti-communist campaign. In March 1936, however, the CCP, led by Mao Zedong, announced a proposal. For all civil wars to cease, so that the Chinese could turn around and fight Japan. Their position at the time, though, was that to be anti-Japan, one must also be opposed to Chiang Kai-shek. The communist leaders reached out to Zhang Shuiliang. Zhang Shuiliang consulted with them, but argued that it made no sense to exclude Chiang Kai-shek. And the central government that he largely controlled from the anti-Japanese effort might there be some way to force Chiang Kai-shek to agree to end the civil war immediately and fight Japan. At this time, the CCP guerrillas had retreated to the province of Shanxi in northwestern China. The capital of Shanxi was, of course, the city of Xi'an. Which in ancient times was the imperial capital Chang'an. On October twenty second, nineteen thirty six, Chiang Kai Shek flew to Xi'an to personally lead the continued pursuit of the communists. A week later, he moved to the other ancient capital, Luoyang. On December first, Zhang Shuiliang learned that Chiang Kai Shek would seek to remove him from the command. Of the Manchurian army, if he should refuse to fight the communists. Two days later, he flew to Luoyang to speak with Chiang Kai-shek personally. The following day, December fourth, Chiang Kai-shek returned to Xi'an to continue the campaign. On December seventh, Zhang Shuiliang, having followed Chiang Kai-shek again to Xi'an, went to see him at. The Huaqing Hot Springs, where Chiang Kai-shek was staying, 
The resort area was still known by that name after a palace that the Tang Dynasty had built back here in the eighth century. There, Zhang Shiliang tried his best to persuade Chiang Kai-shek to come around to his point of view. He said that the Manchurian troops were all eager to fight Japan, and that Chiang Kai-shek would instantly become a national hero if he should take a stand against Japan right now. Chiang Kai-shek, who was 49 now, compared to Zhang Shiliang's 35, said that he was too young and had been fooled by the communists. After much argument, Chiang Kai-shek said, even if you took out your gun right now and shot me dead, my anti-communist policies would still not change. On December 9th, student protesters demonstrated in Xi'an, calling for the government to take a stand against Japan. Zhang Shiliang talked them down and promised to speak to Chiang Kai-shek. The latter, though, again dismissed him. The following day, December 10th, Zhang Shiliang and his confederates finally agreed to launch what forever would be known in history books as the Xi'an Incident. And Jiang, in a way, saw it coming. In his diary entry for December 11th, he noted something odd in Zhang Shiliang's demeanors. Nonetheless, he fell for it. In the wee hours of December 12th, Zhang Shiliang, allied with another general, Yang Hucheng, sent his loyal Manchurian troops to surround the Huaqing hot springs and to enter the compound to seize Chiang Kai-shek. After a gun battle between Jiang's bodyguards and the Manchurian troops, after Jiang tried to get away by jumping over the walls and hiking over the nearby mountain, Zhang Shiliang's forces managed to capture him. That morning, Zhang Shiliang and his allies sent a cable all around China. In this cable, and in statements to the foreign press, Zhang Shiliang emphasized that he would release Jiang immediately and be loyal to him if he would only pledge to end the civil war and fight Japan. Meanwhile, in the Republican capital of Nanjing, rumors flew everywhere that perhaps Jiang was already dead. The KMT leadership wanted to launch a rescue mission and to blockade Xi'an, including its airspace, to prevent Zhang Shiliang from perhaps transporting Chiang Kai-shek out of the area, including to the USSR. But Zhang Shiliang was in direct touch with no less than Mrs. Chiang Kai-shek, Song Meiling, as well as her brother-in-law, the powerful Minister of Finance, Kong Xiangxi, known in English as H.H. Kong. In a cable to the two of them, Zhang Shiliang emphasized that he had no wish to harm Jiang, but only wanted him to change policy. Hearing this, 
Madame Zhang, so Meiling, now firmly opposed any military mission, but urged a peaceful resolution. She went and found one William Henry Donald, an Australian journalist who, for years, had worked in China and worked as Zhang Shuiliang's secretary. She asked Donald to go to Xi'an as an emissary. The Australian gladly accepted the commission, but ultimately, Song Meiling decided to go to Xi'an herself. Accompanied by both Mr. Donald and her brother Song Ziwen, known in English as T.V. Song, who also happened to be the chair of China's central bank. This was on December twenty-second, and in this instance, Song Meiling, who again deserves an episode of her own, showed her medal. As their plane touched down, she handed a pistol to Australian Donald, and instructed him to shoot her on the spot if the Manchurian troops should try to seize her as well. Chiang Kai-shek himself was terribly surprised to see his wife coming to get him. Indeed, the sight of her brought tears to his eyes. Throughout the twenty-second. They negotiated. Then, on the twenty-third and twenty-fourth, Zhou Enlai, later foreign minister for the communist government, came to see Song Meiling. What would the CCP agree to if Chiang Kai-shek were to come around to Zhang Shuiliang's point of view? On the twenty-fourth, under Song Meiling's guidance. The different sides finally came to agreement. Zhang Shuiliang would release Chiang Kai-shek and endorse him as national leader as China fought Japan. The civil war would cease for now, and the CCP would agree to support the KMT central government. The next day was, of course, Christmas. Worth noting, perhaps, that Song Meiling had grown up in America, and was a devout Christian, who had managed to convert her husband to Christianity. So, she thought it would be good luck if they could leave on Christmas Day. Zhang Shuiliang was in agreement, and to reaffirm Chiang Kai-shek's authority after this. Terribly embarrassing episode for the Generalissimo, Zhang Shuiliang agreed to risk his own safety and personally escort Chiang Kai-shek back to Nanjing. But in the final moments, he learned that some of his own officers felt that they were giving away the store without getting enough of a guarantee in return. Finally, in the afternoon of December twenty-fifth. 1936, Zhang Shuiliang escorted Mr. and Mrs. Chiang Kai-shek to the airport. Fearful that his own men would try to stop him, Zhang Shuiliang didn't notify them, nor did he tell Zhou Enlai. On December 26th, the plane carrying Chiang Kai-shek landed in Nanjing, and 
Zhang Xueliang was immediately arrested and court-martialed. He later said that he expected to be executed immediately, but that Chiang Kai-shek now protected him. The court-martial, though, proceeded with such speed that we can reasonably infer that it didn't meet our modern Western liberal notions of due process. Within days, by the beginning of 1937, the court had sentenced Zhang Xueliang to a prison term of 10 years. At this point, though, Chiang Kai-shek called for a special pardon for Zhang Xueliang, which the court then granted. What the pardon actually meant, though, was that the court remanded Zhang Xueliang into the custody of the Central Military Commission, the Central Military Commission, of which Chiang Kai-shek was the chairman. And the custody was to be indefinite. So it was that as the Second Sino-Japanese War, what became World War II, began in earnest in the summer of 1937, the war that Zhang Xueliang wanted to fight, the young marshal found himself not only sidelined, but under house arrest. In the fall of 1937, Zhang Xueliang wrote to Chiang Kai-shek and plead to be let out so that he could join the fight. Chiang Kai-shek gently denied the request. And so Zhang Xueliang spent World War II and the subsequent Chinese Civil War until 1949 being moved from one location to another, always kept under guard by Chiang Kai-shek's agents, always out of reach of the advancing Japanese and later the advancing communists. And as you probably know, Chiang Kai-shek was destined to lose the Civil War. By 1949, the KMT government was in full retreat everywhere, and the Chinese Communist Party would proclaim the founding of the People's Republic of China in October of that year. Chiang Kai-shek and what was left of the KMT would flee to Taiwan, leading to the delicate political situation we now have. Right before this retreat, in September 1949, Chiang Kai-shek sent special agents to assassinate Yang Hucheng, the erstwhile ally of Zhang Xueliang during the Xi'an incident. They wound up killing not only him, but his whole family, and even his secretary. But Jiang did not order Zhang Xueliang's murder. Instead, they moved him once again, this time to Taiwan, to follow the KMT government. Zhang Xueliang said he didn't understand why Chiang Kai-shek spared him, but killed his confederate. American intelligence would later report that it was Madame Chiang Kai-shek, Song Mei-ling, who saved him. Jiang had wanted Zhang Xueliang dead as well, but his wife insisted otherwise and threatened to leave him and to publicize the assassination should Chiang Kai-shek ever order it. I've always felt that 
how Chiang Kai-shek dealt with Zhang Shueliang was a revealing episode. There's no question that Chiang Kai-shek was a dictator. But how much of a dictator? Not all dictators are the same. Zhang Shueliang was someone who had once kidnapped him, held him at gunpoint, and humiliated him publicly by forcing a political agenda upon him. Surely any one of modern history's great dictators, Hitler, Stalin, or Mao, not to mention any monarch worth his or her salt from earlier ages, Augustus, Elizabeth I, Louis XIV, you name it, would have had him killed. It's hard to imagine that any of them would have been restrained from doing so by a spouse. But that was what happened in the case of Chiang Kai-shek and Zhang Shueliang. Arguably, it was this insufficient ruthlessness, this insufficient commitment to a dictator's course that destined Chiang Kai-shek to lose to a man like Mao. Moreover, we can forever debate whether or not Chiang Kai-shek was ultimately right. Failure to destroy the communists in 1936-37 meant their resurgence after World War II. And yet, Zhang Shueliang undoubtedly spoke for many in 1936 when he demanded an end to the internecine fighting so that the Chinese could unite against the Japanese. In any event, after being moved to Taiwan, Zhang Shueliang remained under some degree of house arrest until 1990, although the conditions loosened as the years wore on. By 1990, Chiang Kai-shek was long dead. Even his son and successor, Jiang Jingguo, had also died. Li Denghui, a Taiwanese native who had grown up under Japanese occupation, a man unconnected to the Jiang family, a man whom Jiang Jingguo handpicked as his vice president, had succeeded to the presidency. The Xi'an incident, World War II, the Civil War, these had all entered history books by then. But still, there was Zhang Shueliang, the young marshal, a living reminder that the past wasn't gone. It wasn't even really past. After his release, Zhang Shueliang moved to Hawaii. And finally, in October 2001, Zhang Shueliang died in Honolulu, aged 100. Thus, finally ended a legendary, highly controversial, but undoubtedly highly influential life. The life of a man who, at one point, bent the arc of history to his will, and thus finally ended a remarkable chapter in modern Chinese history. This has been MODG. Thank you for listening.